We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call and leave a message now. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And you can also check out the website, Andy and Don, all one word. That's andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. And you can also ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Great to see you. Good to see you. Welcome to December. Yeah, Boy, where did that wow. go? Where did it go? And, and we're still in double digits, are we? Here's hoping. <laughs> All right, alpha, beta, now gamma. What yeah. are we doing here? Well, you know, it sounds like a video game in a way. Sort of, it? yeah. Or, or maybe a, <laughs> a test drive here. Something at university, perhaps. Yeah. Um, a little abstract. Is this uh, is this like a uh, campus party you're talking nerd. about here? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Frat, Frat house. Frat house? Frat house. Uh, <laughs> far from it, but same words. It's it's kind of interesting in in. Over the years, they've looked at portfolio management as alpha and beta, Mm -hmm. meaning alpha is the how good are your investment funds Mm -hmm. and how good are the investment managers doing. So that's alpha. Okay, and they and you pick the right funds and you're hoping the managers do their job and they're and are they ahead of the game Mm -hmm. um, compared to the index perhaps or below. Okay, so that's that's kind of the one big decision. The second decision was beta, which would be, okay, now that we got all these different funds, how do we put the asset allocation together? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're, you know, how much Canadian, how much US? And that would be beta. So fun um, portfolio planning, more or less. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where most people look at a financial planner. And they're saying, okay, well, he's looking after my investments. Mm-hmm. And if that's what he's doing, you can basically compare that to indexes. You compare that to, um, you know, whatever you... Yeah, there's a lot of different low load funds out there now mm-hmm. um, and very inexpensive ways to invest. So that makes that makes the alpha easy because you're just measuring performance against uh, something else. Exactly. Yeah, whereas beta is a little more, takes a little more uh, well, finesse, right? A little bit more finesse. Okay, you know, you, you have to take into account, okay, how much US do I have? Mm-hmm. And, and kind of sticking to a, a policy of investment policy, if you will. And a, a good example is, uh, we have a lot of portfolio funds. Um, one we've talked about before is iProfile, and there's other portfolio funds where they'll put, say, 40% fixed income, 20% Canadian, 20% US, so much international, so much uh, um, emerging markets. Mm-hmm. And based on that and rebalancing it, you should get this type of performance, whatever that might be. Okay, and so that's that's the portfolio. And then you got the alpha is simply the fund manager within that portfolio. How is he doing? Right. And that's where, again, a lot of people think that's the end of a financial planner. Now, then you add the one more variable, and that's gamma. Mm-hmm. And so what the heck is gamma, Don? Okay. And it is it is what else you bring to the table. And we're going to talk about the five areas a good financial planner will bring to the table and how much difference does it make. Because at the end of the day, most people are looking at uh, building a pot of money, and I want to see how long this will last me. And, and in fact it's been shown that people are more worried about running out of money mm-hmm. than death. Hmm. It's actually 31 to th- uh, 61 to 39%. 
or they would just worry, rather worry about money than death. Maybe <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. Too. Well, there's a lot of they got more time on their hands too, perhaps. But it's we've, we've, sus- we've suspended that fear of death yes, to yeah. a large extent. Exactly. But fear of running out of money. That's right. Is a lot more serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it lasts longer too. Yeah. <laughs> well, running out of money that'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> they might go hand in hand. Yeah. And you get to watch it go down very quickly over the years. Mm. Over a year long, death is a lot quicker generally. Yeah. The so, last year that you're seeing your money run out can't be a good year. No. Oh, that no. would be tough, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. It would be. Sure. And it's interesting. Most portfolio plans are say, okay, and this has been going on for years now. Let's take a 4% draw on your investments. And so if you have a million dollars and you say, I'm going to live off 4% and I'm going to increase it by inflation mm-hmm. every year. So first year, you got a million dollars. The first year, you pull out 40000 Well, let's say your investments could do 5%. I say, okay, that's good. You're not even pulling out all the return. So the first year, you take out 40000 and the portfolio is actually growing by 50000 So now after year one, you have a th- $1,010,000. Yeah. So you're actually seeing it grow. Yeah. And say, well, hey, this is great. I can keep taking my 4% out and no problem. Well, the thing is, by year 11, you're now taking out not 40000 but you're taking out $53,700 mm-hmm. because of the 3% inflation. inflation yeah. And that is the first year where you start to take out more money than it's making. Right. And because your portfolio is now peaked at $1,058,000. Mm-hmm. So now, here you are, you say you retired at 60, you're now 71, and you're now taking out slightly more money than it's making. Just a few hundred dollars difference, to be honest. Well then, quickly, it's amazing how quickly it changes. From that point on, by year 18, you're now 78 years old, and you are now under your million dollars. Mm. Okay. So That's got to be a psychological thing right there too. Absolutely. Yeah. You're now dipping into the original principle. Yeah. But yeah. you're 78. It's taking you 18 years to get there. Say, oh, this is this is working just fine. And my income is now $66,000 a year mm-hmm. because of inflation. Now, your standard of living has not gone up one bit. You've simply increased your income by inflation all the way through. It just sounds great. Oh, wow, I'm making 66000 Well, it's the exact same as the 40000 you're making 18 years earlier right. in terms of buying power. So then you go to, say, age uh, 20, year 27. You're now 87 years old. Your principal is now down to 708000 And you're pulling out 86000 a year. And the reason I took that, I just wanted to show how quickly it can go down. Because yeah. here you are, 87. <clears throat> By the time you hit 90, and three years later, it's gone from 87, I'm sorry, it's gone from 708,000, and you're, and you're pulling out 86,000 a year. By the time you're 90, you're pulling out 94,000 a year, and, you're, Yikes. and your principal is down from 708 down to 532,000 in three years. Hmm. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. And this is why... We, it's extremely important. It's not just put it in autopilot and take this 4% out. There's a lot of things that go on with this. And, and this here is simple interest. Now, it's unlikely you're going to run out of money mm-hmm. um, based on a 5% return, 3% inflation, and your life expectancy because here you are at age 90 and you've got half a million dollars. Sure. So, you, hey, it worked. Yeah. The plan worked. We're all good. Thank you very much, uh, Andy and Don. Everything's just great. But how many people never have some reason to dip into the funds over 30 years. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's number one. 
is what about that car you had to buy? What about your son that you said, okay, I'll lend you some money to buy that <clears throat> house, but I promise to pay you back. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, a, what about that one big trip we're going to take while we still are having a good, while we got yeah, our health? Yeah. There's a, a, a million ways to justify taking out larger lump sums. And it's absolutely incredible how quickly uh, pulling out a little bit of money yeah. over and above the 4% mm -hmm. can have an impact. As I've shown here in this, uh, in this chart that I got in front of me right now, in three years, you've, you've gone from 708 to 532,000. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then what we've gone over many times over the years is something called the Monte Carlo analysis. And this is where what I used in this example was 5% every single year return. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't work that way. Yeah. Okay, we just seen the election with uh, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. The markets were going, have soared actually since he got elected. But it could have gone the other way. Nobody actually knew. It could have gone yeah. down three or four percent. It could have gone up. It could have been a negative ten percent year the mm -hmm. first year you retired, or it could have been a positive ten percent year the first year you retired. There ends up being a big difference of how much you'll end up at the end, depending on your sequence of returns. Mm -hmm. So what the Monte Carlo analysis does, it goes over one hundred and fifty different sequences. It still averages five percent, but the way you get your returns to get that five percent will really make a difference on what are the chances you're gonna run out of money. Mm -hmm. So if you get 5% all the way through, no problem, you'll, you'll be able to make it all the way to 100 and you will have no money, but hey, you had a great life and yeah. you never had it, so exactly. perfect. So going back to this gamma, there's five different areas that have an, a, an impact on what your return could be. Asset location <laughs> and withdrawal sourcing, okay? What that means is where are your assets? Um, currently, I, we see a lot of the times where clients will have things that are very safe, earning interest, something in their non-registered account, um, just going to have it there in case I need the funds, but they're paying tax on that money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're paying tax, it adds to your income every year, rather than having those safe income-producing funds inside your tax-free savings account mm -hmm. or inside your RIF. So that's one. Withdrawal sourcing, where are you pulling your money from? Um, big one here is... Are you pulling it out of um, things that are adding to your income, such as RSPs first? Or are you taking it out of the non-registered first? Or even more importantly, are you managing the tax brackets? Mm -hmm. And this is extremely important. What tax rate are you gonna be paying these funds at uh, when you start pulling these monies out? And quite often, as Andy and I have talked about many times, it's often a combination of non-registered funds and registered funds. Mm -hmm. uh, total wealth asset allocation. If you had, again, this is based on risk tolerance. So when we do a risk analysis and somebody says we're moderate, well, if you don't have a de defined benefit plan, that would normally mean maybe a third in fixed income and two thirds in equity as an example. But if you've got a, a 40,000 a year pension, well, that might differ. That will totally make a difference on how you ma manage those funds. Yeah. So even as you say you're moderate, you've got this $40,000 guaranteed coming in every month, every year. Mm -hmm. And that will definitely make a change on how you invest those monies. So a lot of a lot of people don't take that into consideration, but that should be part of your gamma. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, um, annuity allocation. Making sure you don't run out of funds. Maybe you should have a, a certain part of your assets in an annuity that will never run out of money. Number four, a dynamic withdrawal strategy. This is key. If there's a bad year in the market, maybe you don't take out as much that year. Maybe, and when do you buy that car? Okay, we'll wait for a better time. Put it off a year. 
those decisions on when to pull monies out can make a huge difference. And number five, CPP and old age security optimization. And a lot of people are not pulling out, are using Canada Pension Plan at the right age. They're taking it out. Most people are taking it too early Mm -hmm. and it's costing them a lot of money. So they they took all this into account. And this person that worked all this through is a, is a PhD, works for Morningstar, has no bearing on, the, on, the, uh, on our business at all, uh, very much an independent. But the key part is he went through all this and said, how much difference could that make to your return? And it made a difference of 22%. Hmm. So if you were making, say, a 4% return, or say a 5% return, rather, you would make almost a 6% return based on how you take all those other factors. And that extra 1%, you can imagine how much different that will make on your retirement mm-hmm. if you could earn 1% more by optimizing your situation. So that's the gamma. That's what a financial planner will bring to the table in terms of estate planning, tax planning management, and all the other factors, like Canada Pension Plan Management, taking all those factors and adding more value. And you really must look at what is your gamma. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message, 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can visit their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Use the listener inquiry button to ask a question that way. Or, of course, you can call them at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. It's that time of the year. We're already talking about year-end checklists. Yeah, for sure. Well, have you done your Christmas shopping? <laughs> no. <laughs> I knew you were going to say No. That. Have you? <laughs> I did. I was Cyber Mondaying. Oh, Cyber, good for you. Cyber So was Monday. my wife. Yeah. And that was, uh, apparently Cyber Monday was up 15% yeah. this year over last year. Yeah, and they were concerned huge. it wasn't going to be improvement because Black Friday has taken over, mm-hmm. particularly here in Canada, right? Yeah, Black yeah. Friday has become a big, big item. Uh, so anyway, uh, year end. Um, one of the things, if you have... You know, as you're thinking about, you're either re- coming to retirement, um, even if you're already retired, but just focusing in on your registered plans. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about registered plans and sort of a year-end checklist, I'm talking about your RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan, Registered Retirement Income Fund, the RIF, uh, your TFSA, which is considered a registered plan, tax-free savings account, and LIFTS, a lifetime income fund. So all of these, or LIRAs, these are all registered plans that where the money basically is uh, there's certain more there's a lot more rules around how we treat these and how right. we deal with them and as you're thinking about the year end one of the things that um, that makes sense is contributing to a spousal RSP still and the absolute important thing here so many of us when we think about RSPs we're thinking about that March 1st deadline the yeah. first thir- you know 60 days of the new year we can contribute to the RSP it'll still count for the previous year but when you're looking at spousal RSP contributions it, if there's an opportunity to make the contribution before the end of the year you actually save an entire year in terms of flexibility with withdrawal when you come to withdraw it. Mm-hmm. Normally, when you make a contribution to your spouse's RSP, and the purpose for that is income splitting, right? You're trying to shift future income because when money comes out of a spousal RSP, it's taxed in the hands of your spouse. Mm-hmm. But if they do that in the current year, you make the contribution. 
and the next two years, then any withdrawal comes back to you. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if I make a contribution to a spousal RSP plan now, and I don't take it out before the end of the year, so no, no penalty there. But if I take it, if I don't, if I take it out in 2017, there would be a penalty. If I take it out in 2018, there would be a penalty, but I can take it out January 1st, 2019, and there'd be no penalty for my spouse to take it out. Let's say I wait till January 1st. Now I put the money into the spousal RSP. Current year, if I take it out, penalty. Next year, I take it out, penalty. 2019, if I take it out, a penalty. So I'd have to wait till January 2020 before I could take that out with no uh, attribution or penalty back to me. Mm -hmm. So spousal RSPs, in all cases, if you can make the contribution before the end of the year, it gives you more flexibility in terms of the withdrawal later on. Okay. Now, now one one exception to the taking money out of our spousal RSPs and trying to avoid that is if you can move that money to a spousal RIF. And again, great time to do it before the year's out. Because if you had, let's say you had $100,000 in a spousal RSP and your spouse isn't making very, you know, her, her, his or her income is very low. And let's say it's $100,000. You can move that into a spousal RIF. The following year, they can start taking the minimum out. And if they're just taking out the minimum, there is no attribution rules. So it is, it's a, a technique that I've been using for a number of my clients that are, you know, built up a lot of spousal RSPs and all of a sudden their income's dropped and they're worried about that attribution rules that Andy was just talking about. So on, say on 100,000, they could take out 4% based on their age. They could pull out $4,000 that year and it would be added to their income and not the one that contributed. Right. So a great way to... You know, think about those spousal RSPs, but you, you really should do it before the end of December because the minimum has starts the following year. That's so if right. you wait till January, you got to wait another 12 months right. before the minimum kicks in. So there's just another opportunity yeah, so exactly, for yeah. The rule is the first year you set up your RIF plan, the minimum is $0. No money can come out of it under the minimum rules. Right. So there's no advantage. So you'd have to wait until another year before taking another it out. calendar year. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. Um uh, making advanced contributions to your RSP. So again, coming back to putting money into your own RSP plan. So if you're turning 71, if you turn 71 this year, this is the last year you can make a contribution to an RRSP. And there are situations where that makes sense to do it. It could be to, um, if, if this is to your own RSP. But so a lot of people think as soon as I turn 71, that's it. So if you turn 71 in January this year, they think, oh, I can't, I'm done. The RSPs right. are over. Everything has to be a riff now. No, you have until the end of the year. So even if you turn 71 already, you can still make an RSP contribution up to the end of this year. There's a possibility that that might be an over contribution. In other words, um, if you were working this year, and you had employment income or you had income from your business in the form of salary, then um, you are going to earn or create RSP room for next year because mm-hmm. it's always based on the previous year's income. How much can I put into an RSP? What did I earn last year? 18% of that. So in other words, you are working now in your 71st year. You won't create RSP room uh, for next year, but right. you can't you can't put money in an RSP next year. So you have to put it in by December 31st this year. You will be subject to potentially a 1% penalty as an over contribution for the month of December, but then you get the full deduction, you get to use the full deduction in January for the 2017 tax year. So makes sense if you're uh, a working person or you have an earned income and you're 71 years old, 
look to contribute to your RSP before the end of the year to save taxes for 2017. Yeah, and on the other side of the coin, we always think, okay, how can we get these RSPs out of there? They're all taxable. Now, as Andy mentioned, it's great to get the deduction at a high tax rate, but we're actually coming across the other side now after being in business now for over 30 years. All these people are starting to retire. Mm-hmm. And they say, okay, how do we get these out without paying a lot of tax? And now with the highest tax rate at 53.5%, you're, you're, we're often saying, okay, well, if you were to pass away and you did not have a spouse to leave the funds to, all those funds would be taxed in, the, in one year. Mm-hmm. So that's the one thing. You definitely want to avoid the 53.5% tax bracket. And the RSPs are one big giant tax bomb. They are going to be taxed sooner or later. And our job, how do we minimize that? So I came across a situation last week where a client is 64 this year and her pension is $72,000. So I said, okay, that's pretty good. But she's got you know, a significant amount of money in RSPs. And I said, the problem with that is when you're 71, <laughs> you're going to get hit with clawback. You're going to lose 15 cents for every dollar you take out of that riff against your old age security. Yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, what can we do here? And because she's already in, you know, a fairly high bracket at, at 72,000, you're in a say a 33% tax bracket. Well, then clawback, add that to a 15%. You're now in a 48% tax tax bracket. Hmm. So in her particular case, it was kind of interesting, and I very rarely recommend this, but we're actually pulling out about $65,000 out of her RSP this year while she's 64, brings her income up to about 140, and she's only gonna be paying tax, the highest tax rate she'll be paying on this money is 43%. Hmm. And when she's hit 71, because of the clawback, she'll be paying 48. And then of course, if if or when she, or when she does pass away, um, we're trying to avoid the big 53 and a half percent. So as much as we love the RSPs to help you with your pensions and your income, we really want to manage them on the withdrawal right. and avoid the big tax. I had the exact same conversation with a client this week, and uh, they were t- they said, "You know what? We need some money to replace our deck, and it's going to cost about fifteen grand and something along that line." But I, the, the the phrase that I like to use in this concept is the tax bracket top up. The tax bracket top up is always about how much more could I take out of my RSPs or my RIFs to bring me to top me up right up to the top of that tax bracket that I'm in right now. And so in this case, we looked at between income splitting between her spouse and herself, that they could each earn um, $41,500, so a total of 83000 in the household, and they would both be in the lowest tax bracket. 20%. That is the top Perfect. of that tax bracket, 41500 So we wanted to top her up, take out enough money to bring her income right up to 41500 mm-hmm. She'll pay 20% on that withdrawal. She'll never pay less tax, yeah. ever. You'll, that's the lowest tax bracket there is, unless you make under 19000 and then mm-hmm. you pay virtually no tax. <clears throat> but essentially, then, you know, I said, it's, it's a no-brainer. We'll take the money out of RSPs as an additional withdrawal will withhold 20% tax. You won't owe anything when you file your tax return, but you'll never pay less tax on that. And actually, we looked forward as we started to see the other incomes kicking in. She's only 62 at this point. It made sense to do it because uh, it's possible, particularly if one of them dies, as Don said, now all their income is combined under one tax return instead of divided by two. And and it, it, it seems to be there's a reluctance for people to pull money out of the RSPs because, first of all, they're called retirement savings plans, registered, mm-hmm. registered retirement savings plans. So the, the name is, we're using this for retirement. 
Now, if we were to change the name to a tax-deferred savings plan, meaning eventually you have to pay tax on that, even though it's the same thing, yeah. it just w- changes the way we think about this money. And the whole idea and the planning around this comes out to, okay, save at the high bracket, pull the money when you're in the lower bracket. And that way you win, the government doesn't win. And honestly, my biggest thing is I, I hate to see the government win when it comes to RSPs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love you putting the money in. Yeah. And now that the brackets have creeped up in the last couple uh, budgets have gone through, there's a better chance that they're going to win in this RSP game. That should be the new name, the low tax bracket withdrawal plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. If you're in a low tax bracket, withdraw money from the plan. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but again, this is the time of year you want to do this. It's December. You want to look at how do we maximize our tax situation or minimize our tax, our taxable payable, but maximize our efficiency in terms of tax efficiency. And taking money out of RSPs is not a bad thing. Plus, if you don't need the funds, which is often the case, because this is the argument I often say, oh, I don't really need the money. Let's just let it sit there. Perfect. Let's take it out and we'll move it into your tax-free savings account. Mm-hmm. Each of you are now allowed to put in 46500 is the lifetime limit to tax-free savings accounts right now. And that'll get bumped up on January 1st to uh, another $5,500. Fifty-two grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you do pull the money out now out of the RSP, stick it in a bank account, and then add it to put it in your TFSA on January 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, speaking of TFSAs, another registered plan, uh, the key thing here is if you're going to make a withdrawal, in other words, you're anticipating you're going, you're planning to use money from your tax-free savings account next year, do it before December 31st because the rules for replacing your money, right? Once you take it out, you can always put it back in, but you can't put it back in in the current year, the right. current mm-hmm. calendar year. You have to wait until the next calendar year. Otherwise, you risk being in a penalty situation. So uh, TFSA withdrawals, if you're anticipating needing the money, always make your TFSA withdrawal before the end of the year. Somebody say, well, then I, where do I park it? Or am I going to pay tax on it for them? I mean, if you don't need it till next December, <laughs> December yeah. 2017, yeah. then take it out 2017. But if you need it in the first half of the year, you're fine just to take it out now, park it, and uh, you'll, the cash will be available with you. And you, to the extent you don't use it and you can put it back, you've got the complete flexibility now in 2017 to put back all of the TFSA that you can. Okay. Now, if there's ever a move in your future, you say, you know what? I'm, I, I can't afford the medical insurance. I'm going to go to Victoria. It's beautiful in the wintertime. And that's not a bad thing to do because right now, Ontario, our highest tax bracket, as we just mentioned, was 53.53%, which is just... It's gone over that that glass ceiling of 50%, right? And I'm going through here, and Quebec is a little lower, 53.31. New Brunswick's 53.3. The only one ahead of us is Nova Scotia at 54% even. The only one. But BC, 47.7%. And it looks to me they are the lowest right now. So 47.7%. So if if you are planning on moving... There's another reason to say, okay, I'm not going to cash money out of my RSPs yet um, because that's the highest tax bracket. Or I'm going to move there. And what a great estate plan. If you were to move there and pass away five years earlier, five years later, or even next year, you're now taxed as a British Columbian at 47.7% of is, is how much is your estate being taxed at rather than 53.31. 
that's a that's a five and a half percent difference. Yeah. So on a thousand, a hundred thousand dollars of RSPs, that's fifty five hundred dollars more your kids get to have. Mm -hmm. And if you have a million dollars in different investments that are taxable, that's fifty five thousand dollars difference. So massive change. So again, not saying everybody should be moving to BC, but if it's something that's kind of you're thinking about. Uh, tax, uh, and you're not sure, you haven't, nothing pushed you over the edge yet. Maybe the tax planning might just yeah, push you over really. the edge. <laughs> uh, I'm going to flip back to uh, riffs again. And again, so se age 71 is that magic year where you have to convert your RSPs to a RIF. And a lot, of, a lot of times people will say to me, oh, I'm turning 71. That means my, that's the end. I have to cash in my RSP. Mm -hmm. No, you're not cashing it in. You're simply converting it Moving to an in. income stream. Right. And you have to start taking an income in 2017. Whenever possible, it almost always makes sense to base the withdrawals on the younger spouse's age. Now I'm going to show, throw a caveat in there because we were talking about using spousal rifts and withdrawals. In that case, uh, the minimum withdrawal, which is based on someone's age, it, you could, might want to use the older person's uh, age in that case. Right. But generally, um, you always want to base the withdrawal on the younger spouse's age. And simply all that means, it gives you more flexibility to defer taxes if that's appropriate. Uh, because it's going to be based, the calculation will be based on that younger person's age. So um, again, uh, often that doesn't get discussed when you go in to convert these things, but make sure you're aware that you can, can you can convert your RIF to RSP to the RIF and use your younger spouse's age to calculate the minimum payout for 2017. And it's actually uh, incredible how many people aren't uh income splitting properly. Mm -hmm. And it's something you really should be sitting down with a financial planner. Uh, again, just in the last uh, week, I had a client looking and they did a lot of spousal RSPs thinking they're income splitting, but didn't take into account somebody had their defined benefit plan. And and in the in, in he, his, sorry, she was getting a very good pension, about 40,000 a year. So because they had equal amounts in their RSPs, they think, oh, they're income splitting perfectly. But then you got to look at the other side of the coin. How much defined benefit plan or what your pension plans have? So always add that back into the equation. And again, year-end tax planning doesn't have to be done by the year-end, but that's a great thing to be looking at at any time. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We are planning your financial future. If you've got a question, you can ask now, 905-529-7165. Just leave a message. They'll get back to you. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there as well via the, via the listener inquiry button. Working on year-end checklists here. Yes, this is a this is a big one for any of those investors that have money in non-registered funds, mm -hmm. okay? particularly in corporate class funds. So we've talked about corporate class over the years as a, a, a great way to uh, uh, allow you to rebalance your portfolio without triggering capital gains. And we all loved it. In fact, the whole industry loved this. And uh, the most companies had all their other, any type of fund they had, they also had a corporate class equivalent and so what they've done in the last budget, unfortunately, they got rid of that. Mm. But it, it was it was kind of moved that you had a chance to rebalance your portfolio. They're trying to make it as fair as possible. So they, they did have it at October 31st. They've extended it to January the 1st. So what that means is let's say you had uh, one-third in U.S. investments, one-third in Canadian, and one-third in international. 
And you then said, you know what, the U.S. has been doing fantastic. It's now 50%, and the other two are 25% each. And you love that because, of course, you're saying, well, look how much money I'm making. Well, the problem is, after January 1st, if you were to rebalance that portfolio back to the one-third, 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 you're going to pay a big, giant capital gain on, the, on selling the U.S. to move it proportionally to the international and Canadian. So right now, you have this month only to rebalance your portfolio. And I highly recommend you do that. So the, this is the month. So it's not a normal year, uh, not the normal uh, year-end checklist because it's only going to apply for this year. So make right. sure you get that done. <clears throat> um, another one, and this isn't ha does not have to be done on the year-end, but this is one that's a great time to think about it because I like to set these up at the beginning of a year. And that is about using the CRA's low prescribed interest rate rule, which is currently 1%. So you can loan your spouse one, uh, any amount of money at 1%. So it's hard to move funds. So if you, if you got a, a very high income and your spouse has no income, which is occasionally the case, it's hard to move funds over to him or her because you're just not allowed. There's attribution rules you, mm -hmm. in your investments. If you can't justify why your spouse has, uh, say, a million dollars in investments earning an income, they will say, okay, where did he or she get these funds from? And, if, and, then, and they'll go back up to many, many years, okay? Three years is kind of the minimum, but they can go back further than that and, and go after the attribution laws, and you'll end up paying tax on that. So what they've allowed you to do is lend money to your spouse. So in this case, let's say you had a million dollars, and you've cashed in your stock options, whatever, and you're sitting there with this million dollars, and your spouse is not working and has very little income say making $5,000 part-time or, or no income. Well, the last thing you need is this million dollars earning more income. So you've got this money sitting there and it's say in our, our dividend fund. Our dividend fund is currently paying about three and a half percent. So it's making $35,000 a year. And even if it's in dividends, you're paying about $13,800 a year in tax on that money. And you wish you could say, okay, I'd love to have this million dollars in his or her name. But you can't. So one way to do that, you lend the million dollars to your spouse. She has to pay you 1% interest. And that's the law right now. And, that, and once you lock this in an agreement, it's, it's grandfathered forever. Mm -hmm. So you got this 1% forever on this. And what a great way to do it. So now she pays you or he she pays you, pays you $10,000 a year in interest. Now you got to pay tax on that interest. It's on your tax return. And you're in the highest tax bracket. So you're going to pay about $5,300 in income tax on that. But now your, your spouse has got a million dollars earning 3.5% in dividends. And this is a really you know, low-balling it, but if she was, or he or she was earning 35,000 a year in dividends, they would pay no tax on that, hmm. zero tax. <clears throat> so you've gone from making, paying 13,000 a year, almost 14,000 a year in dividends to paying $5,300 on interest. And what a great way. So you end up saving yourself $8,400, not just this year, but every year. Hmm. So every year there's this big discrepancy between tax brackets. Um, and this is, again, the worst case scenario where you're in the absolute highest tax bracket. And if your income was in a lower bracket than that, there'd, even, there, you know, there'd also be great savings. So great way to do this. You do have to set it up as a, as a, as a, as a true loan with signatures, just to show that if you ever got audited, and each year in December... So this is the year-end portion. The, each year in December, you have to have 
the person who you lent the money to, your spouse, has to pay you a check for the interest. And that's tax deductible to them. A uh, good, very, very good yeah. point, yes. So hmm. in, maybe there's an opportunity in that kind of structure too, where someone could take out 10 grand from their RSPs yes. or their RIF, use that as income, deduct it, pay it, or sorry, pay it to their spouse for the interest. And then it, because it's a write-off, basically uh, not much tax, if any. Yeah, actually, if in that particular case, it goes from an $8,400 savings now to about 10,400 savings. Yeah. So absolutely <clears throat> a great way to... Uh, income split and it's a year, you know, you do this over 10 years, you've just saved yourself $100,000 in income tax in this scenario. Yikes. And you've still got the exact same assets. Nothing's changed a bit. Everything's identical except on you've, you've had this, you know, conversation with your financial planner and you've done proper tax planning. More gamma. More, there you go. More gamma. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Full circle. Yep. <laughs> Uh, We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website, andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. And you can also ask a question there via the listener inquiry button on the website. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can check out the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. And, of course, you can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. And don't forget, you can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Talking about debt. I know. Who's going to say baby? Let's talk about debt. (laughs) Baby. There you go. <laughs> I got the I thought Don I got would the, help you out on the, the background. Right. I should have done the baby. Yeah. I missed right. Uh, and specifically mortgages, but I, I really, and, and again, this is something that uh, we've talked about a lot on the show, but just how much debt has increased over the years mm. as a percentage of our household. And and um, and there's all kinds of issues around it. But one of the things, you know, for example, I had a client who was trying, their, their uh, son had just gotten married <clears throat> in his mid-20s. And they're both working uh, and they're thinking about buying a house, right? And they've actually saved some money. And the reality was, is then we went to get them a look at a mortgage for them. They have no credit history. So here's, here's a young couple making good income. Um, they have, uh, they good have jobs. Cards? They, they, they didn't need credit cards before they've just, and so they're just getting now to the point where they could use, they've just paid cash or they use debit cards. Mm. None of that shows up on a credit history anywhere. And so some of the, I mean, basically the parents now at this point are going to have to co-sign mm-hmm. in order to get them a mortgage. And so some of the basic things you can do as a young person who's trying to get a credit score without having to take on credit card debt. But obviously you can get a credit card, pay it off monthly. They're seeing that that uh, track record of payments. But a couple of other ideas, if you're just getting into your, if you've been in the workforce for a little while, take out a small RRSP loan hmm. this, this January or February for some tax savings and pay it off quickly. And most of these are at very low interest, but how, it does create a credit score for you. How would you establish that if you're in their scenario? I mean- is it possible to go through life without needing credit or having at that point in your life something that says 
yeah, what your history is? It's pretty much a, a car. A, obviously, yeah, that car would be the next one. So that was my next suggestion, right? So if you're going to find, a lot of people will buy a used car, right? And they're mm-hmm. paying cash. They're not going to finance a right. car. They've saved up enough money to buy a used car. But even if you're buying a used car or an older model car, finance a small portion of it. Right. So let's say you're buying a car for eight grand. Finance two thousand yeah. and pay it off over the course of six months at yeah. a low, you know, at an accelerated rate. Mm-hmm. Fantastic way to build a credit score. So, just a couple of ideas. RSP loans are very easy to get without a lot of. You don't need a big credit score yeah. because the investment typically is part of the collateral of the of the loan. So you can get a quick credit score rating by using an RSP loan. You can set up a, a short term car loan if you're financing something. Pay that off quickly, and obviously you can get a credit card. Uh, set up a credit card, but even then, it's hard to get a credit card because often the institutions will want you to co- someone to co-sign right. before they'll even give you a credit card, hmm. even a low limit credit card. So, um, you know, it's a, and then I mean, uh, the banks and the lending institutions are obviously concerned about the default rates for somebody. They don't have any history for a credit score, so default rates become an important uh, factor. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I just learned uh, this week that Investors Group, and a lot of clients don't know that we do mortgages for mm-hmm. we provide mortgages for our clients. We have the, probably the lowest default rate in the industry. So part of that is the gamma that we're yeah. bringing to the table when we look at how you're going to set up your mortgage, mm-hmm. how what's affordable, and making sure that people are making good decisions in terms of their, their financing and their debt structures. When you look at defaults, the biggest rise that we've seen right now is on the single buyer scenario. <clears throat> so this is a single male or a single yeah. female. They are not uh, married. They're not getting married. They're not thinking about it and being in a relationship. And they're now at a point where they can think about buying a house on their own. Mm -hmm. So they are becoming a a large segment of the new home buyer, a single person buyer. The number one reason for people to default on their mortgage, and this is in 60% of the cases, is loss of income. Mm -hmm. So a job loss, they don't have enough of a reserve to be able to carry themselves through. That's the number one cost. And and disability. um, The number two cost. Oh, there you go. Thank you, Don. The number two cost is disability. Which relates to a loss of income. That's what yeah, I was getting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So critical illness or disability, twelve to twenty percent of the cases for defaults are a result of health uh, relating to critical illness or a disability, and thirteen percent, and this is the one that bothers me the most, is because the individual has oversubscribed, and what that mm-hmm. means is that in the industry is that you go into your financial institution, you show them here's how much I make, here's my T four, and the lenders whose job it is to lend money and they get rewarded for lending money, tell you, oh, sir, you can borrow $780,000. So guess what the person does? Takes it all. They oversubscribe. They take as much as they can. And now they're so tight in terms of their regular day-to-day budget, anything that comes along that throws them off track, they're in trouble, Mm -hmm. right? So oversubscribing is such an important, we never, you never see that in our in our mortgage uh, mm-hmm. portfolio, because again, we're providing that gamma. I like that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the new time home buyer, it's uh, you can still put down five percent for a mortgage, but the, you have to pay a high ratio insurance premium. Well, that insurance premium is three point six percent of the amount of the mortgage. But if you get to ten percent, so if you had eight percent down, that extra two percent. If you can get to 10%, your insurance premium drops from 3.6% of your mortgage to 2.4%. You mm, save 1.2%, you know, on a 
dollars $600,000 mortgage, you're looking at about seven, $8,000 that mm-hmm. you're going to save by being able to get yourself to that 10%. The other big change that happened just recently was prime rate. TD Bank, on its own, decided to raise prime by 15 basis points, 0.15%. That was in the absence of any changes by the Bank of Canada. Mm -hmm. They just looked at their cost structure and decided they were going to pass this through to the consumer. So everybody who has a TD mortgage automatically had an increase of the variable rate mortgage, an increase of 0.15%, and they're now going to be paying more every month. Hmm. And it wasn't a fu- it wasn't a function of what Bank of Canada did. It yeah. was simply a business decision by TD. And that would also apply to everybody's line of, line of anybody anybody's line of credit yeah. as well. So um, you know, lots to talk about in this area. But I think debt and your financing is still such an integral part of your overall financial plan. Understanding how that is, managing it as you head into retirement is key. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a Thanks, great Scott. week. Thanks, Scott. See you next week.